as uh, we get into our sermon this morning. It's good to see you all on uh, this beautiful mid-July day. Man, I love uh, worshiping together and singing those words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And those are some of our favorite words to sing together as a church, I think. And um, it's a good thing for us to declare that together. It's what we should do as we gather every week. But as we, as we go through life, I think there's a reality that all of us, I know there's a reality that all of us uh, come up against eventually at some point. And here's the truth. As much as we declare God's goodness, as much as we sing of his unceasing faithfulness to us, there's a reality in life, and that life is sometimes hard. And that's just true. I think all of us at some level have experienced this. If you haven't, you will. Um, but there are seasons in life that are hard. That is part of life. And so as we gather as Christians, as we, as we open God's Word and we invite the Spirit to teach us and, and we examine how God would have us live, um, I think there's a book in particular that's helpful for us, especially as we, uh, as we confront this problem of life being hard, and that's the book of Psalms. And today we're going to be in one of the Psalms. Uh, Matt's out of town on vacation, so we're taking a quick break from our Genesis series. We've been in Genesis for almost a year now. Uh, he'll be back from vacation uh, here in just a couple weeks and we'll resume with the story of Joseph and kind of barreling through towards the end of the book of Genesis. But for right now, today, what we're going to be in is the book of Psalms. Now, just to give you a little bit of context for this book and the chapter we're going to be in today is the Psalms are a collection of poems. They're a collection of songs. And what the Psalms are intended for was kind of two, two purposes. They were intended as, as uh, texts and music to be used in corporate worship, just like what we're doing right now. We just sang a text basically straight out of Psalm chapter 34, right? But they're also intended as a means of devotion for us. The Psalms give us a means of praising God, giving us a voice to praise God. And so it's a very unique book. Uh, it's one of the longest books in the Bible. And um, about half of the Psalms were written by King David. King David was kind of the pivotal figure in Israel's history throughout the Old Testament. Uh, he, he's kind of like smack in the middle of the genealogy between Abraham and Jesus. David is kind of the central uh, ideal figure as the monarch of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, if you remember last week, uh, Matt walked us through the story of Judah and Tamar. And it's a complicated story, lots of uh, weird ethical and moral questions in that. But the bottom line in that story is God used this encounter between Judah and Tamar and ultimately 10 generations down the line from the child that they had, we have David. We have King David. And King David wrote about half of the Psalms, including the one we're going to look at today. Now, the Psalms, like I said, are, are a book of poems. They're a book of honest reflection before God. They were, they were compiled in, um, most, most of them were compiled together in the book that we have now after Israel had been exiled from their homeland, after the temple where God's presence dwelt with them was destroyed. And the Psalms became, in a way, a literary 
temple for the people of God. They would use the Psalms as a means of entering into God's presence. They would read these texts, they would sing these texts, and they would remember who God was, and they would express their love and their devotion and their honesty towards God. And so in many ways, the Psalms help us as we confront this problem of life is hard. Like the Israelites were in exile. Life was hard but this helped them remember who God was and helped them enter into God's presence. So I hope that this psalm today as we read serves as a bit of a model for us um, as we kind of wrestle with this question. We're going to be in Psalm 5. So you can turn there with me. I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm actually going to invite us to read out loud a couple verses in here together as we get to the end of this chapter. But uh, I'll read the first ones. Psalm chapter 5, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Let's read these last two verses out loud together. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. This psalm's not really um, particularly unique. There's a lot of other psalms like it. But I think that this psalm serves as a good model for us as I said, as we approach the question of what do we do when, God is, when, when life is hard? What do we do with God? How do we approach God? And, and what we have here is a psalm where David is doing just that very thing. He's, he's troubled about something. There's something that is weighing on his soul. And so he comes to God with this prayer. And, and this prayer, like I said, is a model for us. He, he, he moves from a cry for help at the beginning to a song of praise at the end. In a lot of ways, that is a very normal pattern that we see in the Psalms. But let's get into how David gets there. He says in verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Now, we know this is a prayer that David is speaking or singing in the morning. We see that in a couple of verses. This is the first thing that he is saying as he wakes up in the morning. And we know, it's clear from this Psalm, that there's something weighing on David. There's something kind of in the pit of his stomach that is causing him distress. You've, you've had that experience, right? You've experienced what it's like to wake up in the morning and that same thing that kept you up the night before, it's still there, right? There's something that is, is hanging 
on your shoulders, and it's, it's not gone away. You wake up, and this is still the reality. Maybe it's a relationship that is, is out of sync. Maybe you've got financial worries. You, you've got just multiple things coming at you. You've got different stresses in that, in that sense. You don't know how you're going to afford to pull certain things off. Maybe it's loss. You've got a loved one that uh, is no longer around. I know a couple people even just this week that I've talked to that have experienced miscarriages recently, and they've worked through and are working through the loss of a child, an unborn child. Maybe it's a, a plan you had for your life, and you are increasingly seeing that this plan is not going to happen the way you thought it would. And so the, the loss of that hope and that dream is, is weighing on you in the pit of your stomach. Maybe it's job uncertainty. Maybe it's um, uh, you've got a kid who is making poor decisions. They're just, they're just not making good choices. All of these things can be weighing on us at any given moment, and we can go through seasons where there's just something that we can't shake, and we wake up in the morning, and the only thing we know how to do, if you notice what David says here in the psalm, he says, consider my groaning. The psalm hasn't even found words yet. He doesn't even know how to pray. He doesn't know what to say, but he just knows that something's wrong, and so I'm groaning to God in that. Paul mentions this. The Apostle Paul later in the New Testament mentions this in Romans 8 when he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's times when it's okay to not know what to say to God. Other than that, I know something's wrong, and you're the one I'm coming to. Right? There's this inaudible groan that moves us in the direction of God. And so we move on into verse 2. David says, he continues on, the prayer begins to take more shape here. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Prayer starts to take on a little bit more form. There's no words necessarily yet. There's no eloquence. There's no articulation of what he's going through. But it's, it's still this sense of he's crying out to God, and now he's identifying who he's praying to. There's a familiarity here of who David's prayer is being addressed to, and he's, he's taking comfort in that. My king and my God, to you do I pray. He's starting to gain clarity because he knows who it is that he is praying to. David himself is a king, so he understands this idea of, of people coming to him and this idea of authority and responsibility, and yet he is submitting himself to his king and his God here, and he has confidence in that, and so he continues to pray, and as he gains confidence in his prayer, it begins to find words in verse 3. O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And you see what's happened here as the prayers moved from an inaudible groan of distress to a cry of help to a God who he knows, to a sacrifice. He's formulating a sacrifice of prayer to God. Now, thinking of prayer as a sacrifice, I think is kind of an interesting thing 
to think because a lot of times we think of prayer being primarily about what we receive from it, right? But you see what David says here? He says, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch, he's talking about the prayer that he's bringing to God. The prayer itself is a sacrifice. It's an offering that he's bringing and presenting to God. What I think he's talking about here is, is this idea of prayer being something that we do intentionally. Prayer being something that it costs us something, whether it be our time, whether it be um, not doing something that we had hoped to do because we're devoting ourselves to prayer. But prayer can be and should be understood as a sacrifice. Now, I know this is challenging for me. I, I'm the first to confess that intentional prayer can be difficult. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we will look at Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians where he says, pray without ceasing, right? And we'll, we'll camp on that. We'll say, yes, we're supposed to pray without ceasing, which means we're praying all of the time. And what ends up happening is that just becomes an excuse because when we say that we're praying all of the time, what really happens is often we're praying none of the time right? And so what we see here is this idea of prayer being a sacrifice means that, yes, prayer is something that we should consider with intentionality and offer to God as something that costs us. We are riding that feedback today, aren't we? Prayer should cost us something. And so David, as he's, he's moving into consciousness from, from waking up from his sleep, he, 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 begins his prayer, and he moves into formulating these words. He's presenting this trouble, this hurt that he has in his life to God. Before he asks for anything, he establishes the character of the God he's praying to. Look what he says in verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. David takes time in his prayer to stop and say, this is who you are. He, he brings up God's character. And what is God's character? As, as David mentions here in the prayer, what type of God is he? A holy God. He's a holy God. This idea of God being holy means that he, he is existent, completely separate from anything else in creation. There's nothing else quite like God. To the point where evil cannot even stand in God's presence. Right? He says that God hates sin. It says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Now, I, I think about what does this mean, God to, uh, God to not be even able to dwell with sin. I, I think this is less of a philosophical thing and just more of the reality. My, my wife, when she grocery shops for us, she um, very rarely will buy bags of potato chips because we both know that if there's potato chips in the house, they just cannot 
exist because I will consume them. It's not within my character to allow potato chips to go unconsumed. And in a similar way, it's not within the character of God to allow evil to exist in his presence. That's a terrible analogy. But you get the idea. God, evil in God's presence cannot help but be consumed by his holiness. It cannot stand. It can't exist. And so David is saying this about God. He says, this is the type of God you are. You are a good and holy God, and in that you are a just God. And so what David is doing is he's, he's essentially building a case, kind of like a lawyer saying, I've got some stuff I'm bringing to you, God. I've, I've got some stuff that's weighing on me, and I want you to hear about it. And so here we go. You are a God who is just. You are a God who is holy. And let me tell you about some evil stuff that is, you're not going to stand for because that's who you are. And really, the fact that God is committed to justice should be good news and a relief for us all, right? Because what kind of God would it be if we served a God that was okay at any level with the existence of evil? If, if we served a God who somehow was content with injustice, that's not the God we serve. The God we serve is fully just, fully righteous, and in his holiness, he is good. And so we can place our trust in him. And so David builds this case. He begins, he affirms God's character. He, he, he prays God's essential attribute. By the way, do we ever pray God's attributes, or do we just jump right to the request that we're giving God, right? When we pray, do we, do we ever pause to consider the type of God we're praying to? Because it really changes things, doesn't it, right? If, if the God we're praying to is like this, then that shapes our prayer. But if, if God is just this genie that's out there, then our prayers might as well just be a list of requests, right? But do we ever take time in our prayer to stop and identify and affirm who God is? But David does this, and so essentially he comes to what is his closing argument, basically. This is why you should listen to me, God. He says in verse 7, but I, just after he just said, you, you, uh, the, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, I'm not like that. Oh, that's not what he says. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, I was raised better than that. Nope. Still not right. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. David knows his sinfulness. He's very aware of the fact that these men, these types of men that he just listed off as enemies of God, he's right there in that camp. He knows that his identity is a sinful man. And we know this because later on in Psalms, in multiple places in Psalms, but in Psalm 143 too, he says, no one living is righteous before you. David knows this to be true, and he's honest with himself. He says, I realize I've got no leg to stand on when it comes to being in God's presence. 
Paul affirms this as well. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy when he says, Jesus came to save sinners, and then he follows it and he says, of whom I'm the worst. We love the first half of that verse, right? We love Jesus came to save sinners. Yeah. The second half is a little bit harder to, to own, right? Of whom I'm the worst. Essentially, this is what David does when he says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Notice what he just said a few verses ago. He said, uh, evil may not dwell with you. And yet here he is, claiming to be in the presence of God. So, so the only way that we can be in God's presence is if we are holy like God, or if something has happened for God to regard us as holy. And David knows that the only ground he has to stand on to be in God's presence is to be on the receiving end of God's abundant love. So David rests his case, right? He brings his, his argument to a conclusion and says, this is why, God, I want you to hear me. I want you to hear my prayer. Not because of what I've done. Not because I'm, I'm particularly moral. Not because I've got uh, solid family values or a, a, a consistent uh, social justice ethic, right? Not because of my righteousness, but I stand here, God, in your presence because of your abundant love. He doesn't say he's in God's presence because of his identity. He doesn't own any type of, of uh, merit on his, his own that has earned himself into God's presence, but rather, in spite of it, he stands, and he has placed his identity within the mercy of God. He's gained the identity of God's love. He's aware of this. He's aware of this to the point where this is his morning prayer, and this is the first thing he does is remember and recognize this. And I think this is probably the most significant moment in this psalm because we see David's perspective revealed. And, and for all of us, as we pray to God, I think that it's important for us to remember that prayer is perspective shaping. That's what it does. When, when we have hard things in our life, when, when there are times when we're in difficult seasons, what's the first thing we do? Do we jump straight to the ask, right, the request? God, I need you to help me with this. I need you to give me wisdom for this. I need you to provide this for me. Or do we ask for a perspective change? John Calvin says that the best thing to do when we're confronted with injustice and evil and suffering is to set the grace of God before our eyes. This changes our perspective puts things into a right perspective. And you see what David says at the end of verse 7. He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And true worship is always a bit of a paradox because it always involves an element of fear. Holy fear. We're standing in God's presence because we've received his grace and his abundant love, yet we recognize his holiness, his great holiness. And so there's, there's a, a humility there with that confidence and the, those things 
to be true worshipers must be held together in tension. And so now David has located himself within the mercy of God, and he's gained perspective. He finally gets to his request, right? He gets to the point of the prayer where he is actually asking God to do something. He spent the time coming to God and affirming his attributes, and he's placed himself in the identity of God's mercy. And so now he gets to what he's asking for. And what does he say? Verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. That is surprising to me. It shouldn't be surprising, but it's surprising to me because we know that David is writing this psalm out of a place of hurt, out of a place of fear. And so it would seem appropriate and it would seem right and it would seem good for David to come to God and ask for him to right the wrong. But do you see what David doesn't do? He doesn't ask God to change his circumstance. He doesn't appeal to God's sense of justice, except when it came to him being in God's very presence, right? And I think th this is important because what, what happened was once David's perspective was changed, by the abundant love and mercy of God, his desire was then changed, right? His desire was shaped by God. When our perspective is shaped by God, then our desires and our requests become shaped by God. And so David says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of your enemies, make, or because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. David was more concerned with the righteousness of God living in a right way before God, being in God's presence and in relationship with God, then he was concerned with being delivered from his circumstance. That's not to say he didn't care about that, and we see he goes into the specifics of his circumstance here in a couple of verses, but David's primary concern was righteousness. That's what he asks for. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, Oh, you of little faith, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first his righteousness. That's the priority. That's the order of making our requests to God, saying, God, I want to be righteous in your sight. I want to know more of the things of you. I want to know more of you and have more of you in my life. So David says, make your way straight before me. What does that mean, make your way straight? Um, I've, been, I've been going to the gym a little bit lately. Apparently I ate too many chips. And... Uh, so I've been trying to go to the gym a little more lately and, and uh, running on the treadmill some. And so uh, these treadmills that I run on, they've got these video screens. Right, you probably all know this, but um, this is all new to me. So they've got these video screens, really exciting. They've got these video screens, right? And, and as you're running, uh, they've, they've got these scenes that, that kind of like give you a first-person view as if you're like running through a forest, right? You're like 
winding through the trees, and then it winds around this way, and then all of a sudden there's this like nice crossfade, and you're like running on a mountaintop, and there's a, there's a creek running beside you, and it's just, it's, you, you almost think you're like in, in nature, and then you like turn your head, and there's a sweaty guy next to you on the treadmill, you know, and you're like, oh, it's just fake, you know, but, but like, so, so if I were actually to be running on one of these paths on the video screen instead of on the actual treadmill, I would, I would have to be really paying close attention to where I'm going, right? Like, as I'm running around, I have to be like, oh, there's, there's a rock there. Oh, there's poison ivy there, the edge of the stage there. You know, like, I've got to pay attention to the path. But the thing about a treadmill is when, when you're running on the treadmill, uh, they, they take all of that out of the equation for you. So all you have to do is literally <laughs> this, right? It's not hard. And uh, it's straight. Because the thing about a straight path is, is when your path is straight in front of you, it's not necessary to look at the path and to look at the things on either side of the path. It's not necessary to see if the path is turning this direction or going this direction, what dangers might be on this side of the path or on this side of the path. But when the path is straight, you can look at where you're going. Your gaze can be fixed straight ahead. And so if the path is straight, you just keep on going forward. You don't have to break your gaze. And so David says, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. David says, I can't, I can't be dragged down by the enemies on either side of me, Lord. Make my path straight because I don't want to look at all of this. I don't want to be distracted or tripped up by, by the stuff that's on the side of me. I want to be able to look at you and not the path. I want to be able to see you and your righteousness, and I want that to be the thing that inspires me forward, right? I want your righteousness to be the thing that is most glorious to me, more glorious than all of this other stuff. So David prays for God to make his way straight. He moves on to describe his circumstance. This is what he's dealing with. He says in verse 9, For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. We don't know exactly what David's danger was. We don't know if he was in physical danger or if there was, I mean, at a minimum, there's some, some slander or some attack, verbal attacks being made on him. We know the extent of it, but we know that it's deeply distressing for David. Verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now remember, this is an honest, passionate prayer. It's good to be honest with God, with where we're at. He wants to hear where we're at. I think sometimes we can get a little bit hesitant to embrace some of the passages in the Psalms, and there's others that David goes into a lot more detail about what he wants God to do, right, to his enemies. Um, and sometimes we can cringe a little bit with some of these passages. And he says, um, let them fall by their own counsels, uh, cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. And we can come across some of these passages, and, and we think, like, that's not very nice. <laughs> Christians probably shouldn't pray that way, right? But this is David's reality, and God wants us 
to bring our realities to him. He wants us to bring the honest emotion we're feeling, the honest uh, distress that we're in. He wants us to bring that to him and lay it before him. Tim Keller has a great quote. He said, when we pray, God will either answer our prayer with what we asked for or he'll answer it with what we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. God's not afraid for us to ask things of him, maybe even if they're misguided sometimes. The thing that he matters, or the thing that matters to him is the sacrifice of prayer. The, the coming to God and engaging with him at that level. Now, what's interesting about this is that regardless of whether David should ask this kind of thing in prayer or not, he's really describing just what is true. He says, let them fall, or make them bear their guilt in verse 10. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out for they have rebelled against you. He's describing what God does because God is holy and because God is just and righteous. Those who, who refuse to embrace their sinfulness and their need for God's mercy on their lives and go their own way ultimately will be cast out from God's presence. That ultimately leads to rebellion against God, which God always deals with. So David is, is in many ways right to pray this because he's simply describing the justice of God. But we see in David's prayer, whatever it was that he was dealing with, whatever the voices were, whatever the attacks were on him, it's clear to us that he trusted God to deal with them. And, and I think m the reason for that is because he never actually asks God to help David overcome these things. He asks God to deal with it in his way, in his time. And David's focus remains on walking the straight path of righteousness, right? When the voices of the pain in our lives assault us or attack us, when we start being consumed or start listening to the, the voices that, that, that are not coming from a place of truth, but from a place of destruction, how do we respond to that? What's our gut reaction? I don't know what voices you might be hearing, but maybe they sound something like, this pain that you're going through is going to ruin your life. The grief you feel now, it's always going to be with you. Nobody actually cares about you. You're not loved. God has abandoned you. Is God even good? What's our, what's our answer to these voices when they start coming our way? Uh, many of you know my family has been in a bit of a particularly... Uh, challenging season over the last year. We've had some uh, loss in our family. My wife's younger brother, um, is, like I said, as many of you know, uh, is 10 years younger than her. 
um, about a year ago, had a relapse of leukemia. He had de he originally de dealt with it when he was in high school, and and uh, was free of the cancer for several years, and was engaged to be married. About a month before his wedding last year, uh, the cancer came back, and it was um, particularly aggressive. And within six months, had taken his life. And so we, as a family, my wife and and uh, you know all of us have have walked through this season of suffering. And we've, we've been in this place of, of wrestling with some of these voices, some of these questions. How do we respond to this? How do we deal with this? And as, you know, as, I've, as I've walked with my, my wife, she's, she's particularly dealt with this, and as I've heard from her in, in how she has responded and, and the things that she has, has had to process, uh, the thing that has been consistent and true is the times when she feels peace, the times when, when we still know that things are not right, but they will be ultimately made right. The times when she can realize that and hold on to that are few, but they're pretty much exclusively times when we're worshiping God. The moments when we're praising God are the moments when perspective is made right. And our perspective helps us see the big picture of what God is doing and what God wants to do. Sometimes God may deliver us from the circumstance, right? He may choose to do that. Sometimes he may not. Sometimes the circumstance stays the same, but God's priority is for our perspective to change and for our vision to move off of our circumstance, not, not ignoring it, not in an escapist sort of way, but for our perspective to change from being consumed by our circumstance to being consumed with him. David wraps things up in verse 11 where he says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. David trusts that God's going to deal with the pain. He trusts that God's going to deal with the hurt, either now or later at some point in the future. But he trusts... In the character of God, he knows that this holy, just God who he serves cannot help but deal with injustice and deal with evil that exists. And so he places his trust in God, and what he finds is refuge. He finds refuge, and he says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. This is what followers of God do. We gather we remember and we praise. And in that, we find refuge. We find freedom. We find refuge. Verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The word he uses there for cover is only, the, the original Hebrew word right there is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's describing a battle scene in which someone is basically holed up and the enemy is encircling them and they're closing in and there's no escape. 
They're covered on all sides. And David uses that same word here to describe in the positive sense what God does for us when we find refuge in him. There's, there's no escape from it. We're completely encircled. We're completely shielded in by God. You cover him. God covers us with favor as with a shield. So when there's hard stuff in life, when there's suffering, when there's hurt, it can't get to us. It can't penetrate that, that shield. And it's not going to undo us. It's not going to shake us because we have the favor of God. Hebrews 12, uh, 28 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The same God who has shown his mercy on us, when we know we don't deserve it, there's nothing we can do to receive it. That same God who has shown us that mercy is the same consuming fire who is going to deal justly with all injustice in the end, who is going to make all things new through his resurrection power. This morning, if you don't know that type of refuge, if you haven't experienced that type of peace, I pray that you consider these words. I pray that you consider... This, this prayer of David, um, it, it, you know, on, on, on first read through, maybe an unremarkable prayer, when you, when you hold it up against all the other psalms, it sounds a lot like a lot of them, right? But when you, you, when you get in and look and see what is really going on here, I think this really is a model of what God does. When we, when we humble ourselves and recognize our sinfulness before God, we identify ourselves in his mercy, our reward is his righteousness, and the peace that comes from walking in his straight path. The blood of Jesus on the cross is what enables us to be in the presence of our holy God. And if you haven't trusted him yet, my prayer, my hope is that you would consider that, that Holy Spirit would lead you to that this morning. Let me pray. Lord, so grateful for you. So grateful for your word that, that consistently and faithfully ushers us into an understanding of you and into your very presence. Lord, whatever the hurt is that's going on in the lives of those here this morning, and I just pray that that you will give us a, a perspective change. That when we locate ourselves in your mercy and we find ourselves at the receiving end of your love, that our, our priorities, our desires, our groanings will be for you and will be directed towards you. Lord, you've... you've done the work. You've accomplished our salvation. You've, you've made it possible. So Lord, we receive it today. 
May we continue to walk in faith. May you continue to lead us along your straight path of righteousness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.